Shareable is part of C-Suite Radio. The guest becomes the host, and the host becomes the guest. This segment is called Now You Do Me. Don't make it weird. Welcome to Shareable. My name is Bart Moraz. With us is John Suter. Hello. And we have Jeff, who's actually the host of Shareable, but now we're going to interview him. Well, actually, today you're the host, Bart. I am the host. Yeah. Uh, John and I actually run a podcast called The Register. It's all about e-commerce. It's kind of fun. And we'll see how this goes. I think this will go great. This is uh, our, our first kind of co-branded episode we've ever done on Shareable, but uh, I can think of no two more handsome people with faces for radio than you two. Shall we put the logos in alphabetical order, or shall we, but by the nicer logo should go on top? That's what I think. Mm, what if we <laughs> combine the two and we just put like some sort of a shit? You're a designer, Sum- John. You can figure this out. Sumobable. Sumobable. Register Sumobable. Yeah. Shareable heavy. All right, Jeff. Where do you come from? I hail from a small town in Long Island, or Long Island, as it were called by the name. Hey, wait a minute. I know there's something before that. Okay, so before that, I was actually, uh, I, I, my ship crash landed in a cornfield in Kansas, and um, you know I was raised by these two very humble people, um, and I didn't really discover it until my teens. But I have immense powers. Um, I'm very, very strong. I can hold my breath for extended periods of time, and the yellow sun gives me immense amounts of strength and durability. After that, I moved to Long Island, and as a child, I grew up on the south shore of Long Island, uh, which is a real blue-collar kind of area, and I spent the first 12 years of my life there, moved to a uh, more north shore, ritzy, white kind of suburb called Port Washington, and I decided that I was going to pursue my dream of becoming the starting point guard for the Knicks. Well, that's, that's awesome, and apparently you lost your New York accent and picked up your Philly accent. Uh, I actually never had a New York accent, nor did I have a Long Island accent, nor do I have a Philadelphia accent. I actually dabble in a number of different accents. One of the things that uh, Erica really likes about me is that I routinely will dip in and out of Irish, Scottish, uh, German, Russian. The ladies love the they accents. They do love Take the it accents. Me. They're really big fans. I wish I didn't lose mine. Yeah? Yeah. You I'm can't just good. turn Who it on. Who said you lost it? <laughs> Oh, you can't yeah, just turn Polish it on. Is, no, it comes out very Russian because Russian is so harsh. Yeah, not harsh, but it's like hard accent. Whereas Polish is softer and it's hard to do. Huh? You can do it. I'm gonna study it, and next time we talk on the phone, I'm just gonna talk to you in a <laughs> Polish accent. I'm gonna ask you to go out for pierogies. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, pierogies are good. Yes, a little sour cream, a little fried onion. I'll show you his kibasa. <laughs> Okay. P- PG-rated show, sorry. Um, <laughs> Is it, though? Eh, no, it's not. It's not. Three of us here, it's not. So, Jeff, after Long Island, where did you go to school? Uh, I went to school at Temple University. So did I. Uh, oh, did you? Yes. I did not know that. That's strange that I've never known that. Or maybe I did know that and I just forgot it. I also forget a lot of things. Uh, but I went there for film school. And uh, I got my MBA at Drexel. And um, this, th- actually, this past January was what I refer to as my equinox. Um, so I'll explain. I, I believe in equinox is any time that you're at kind of like the, the tipping point of the bell curve, I guess. But I'll have spent as much time in my life 
more time in my life in Philadelphia than I did in New York. So at 18, uh, I moved here. Gotcha. And then I just turned 37. And uh, that's the point at which I believe now, technically, I am a Philadelphian. So I had to abandon all of my New York sports team allegiances in favor of Philadelphia ones, uh, which, you know, remains to be seen whether that's a good decision. Is there a ritual involved, like a burning of jerseys or baseball cards or anything like that? You just, just get beat up in the stadium. You just get beat up. I slaughtered a chicken, but... No, no chickens were harmed in the making of this episode. And by slaughter a chicken, I mean I went out for a giant plate of wings, had myself a yard's right. pale ale, and I said, what, I'm a Philadelphia. What you can't see is Jeff has air quotes going. Slaughtered Lots a chicken. of air quotes. air quotes. I slaughtered that chicken. That's right. Yeah. Actually, I think um, technically I'm one of the world's greatest chicken mass murderers because of the amount of wings I eat. So if there's ever a chicken uprising, do not be around me. Uh, we need to go slaughter some chickens one night. Yes. So this, this is film career of yours. Let's go there. Okay, let's talk about the film career. So, Lack okay. Of. Yeah, I, I'm, I still think that I'm involved in film, just not in the way that I thought. So I, I was a big fan of like Stanley Kubrick, uh, Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino. I liked great storytellers people that can build a narrative and sometimes in non-traditional ways. So that was what I fell in love with moving into film school. And what I really wanted to do was to build big, epic Hollywood-style films, um, thoughtful, you know, well, uh, well-crafted story versions of that. But uh, Temple was, and still is, I believe, a documentary and experimental film-type school, and they often frowned upon many of my more, uh, I guess, mainstream narrative Hollywood-type ideas um so i also went during a very interesting time where uh it was the transition from analog technologies to digital technologies and in the beginning that was a pure shit show so um you know i was dealing with very subpar digital equipment and then the digital editing would take hours upon hours to do anything so crafting a story was very difficult and then if you tried to use actual film like um, you know, silver-based film and everything. It was expensive. It was time-consuming, and editing was even worse there because you're like holding up sheets of film to light and trying to clip out like the number of different uh, uh, frames that you want to get rid of. So I decided to pivot, and I went to photography because I could tell stories in individual frames. Really fell in love with that medium. Liked uh, really toying with it and doing. Um, that's where I really enjoyed experimental type things rather than in film. I was much more interested in photography and experimental development techniques, really messing with Photoshop. Once I learned that, I got really, really into digital manipulation of photos. And I felt like I had a lot of control there, so I really liked that. And that's one of the things I was looking for in film that I didn't get because I wanted to do screenwriting and directing. And I could, even if I built a big screenplay, shooting it would have been nearly impossible. And then directing, because I was in film school and, you know, uh, there just wasn't, and, and production of film was so difficult, I really didn't get the chance to do it. In photography, I had total control, just complete control in it. So that's why I fell in love with it. Came out of school, thought that I was going to travel the world and take pictures of half-naked ladies. It was an ambitious young 20s dream. Um, and as, as it should be. As it should be. Um, and, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed that path until it was clear that wasn't going to happen. I think, Johnny, you, you and I would enjoy that. I, I would have a ball doing that. I don't know so, who wouldn't enjoy that. Who wouldn't enjoy that? Seems like it would be fun. Exotic places, exotic women? Yeah, exactly. I was like, why wouldn't I want to go to like Tahiti with women in bikinis? So why Stop. didn't it pan out? The lack of women or the lack of finance? <laughs> <laughs> um, I just don't think I had any real... 
idea about how one goes about doing that kind of a career. Because someone needs to pay for all that. Yeah. It just like – I don't know. I did a lot of photo shoots on my own. I did my own kind of thing. But it just – I guess it became clear that that was just like a pipe dream that wasn't going to happen. So um, you'll, you'll notice a theme in the way that I went about anything that I wanted to do. It was like I never thought like, oh, I'll just be a cog in the machine. It was always like, no, I'll be the machine operator. So uh, you know, I wanted to be like the number one this or the number one that starting point guard for the Knicks. You know, Stanley Kubrick-esque type filmmaker, the number one photographer that's requested to go around the world because of my particular style, et cetera. So once I got rid of that idea, I decided to pursue another passion of mine, which is cooking. I've been cooking since I was like seven years old or so, and I started an uh, in-home fine dining uh, personal chef service about 12 to 15 years too early because right now everything that Blue Apron is is winning with and all of these other similar services sure. was essentially the idea I had in 2001, 2002. That's like how we started the first pop-up restaurant almost 10 years ago now and it was like now it's a thing. Yeah. It's We're like having way a speakeasy in the 80s. Like no right. one, They were like, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> right. We're going a tunnel. Right. Yeah. Um, so did that for about two years and, and actually – that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot about um, business and, and how I wasn't good at it. And um, that's what made me decide to go get my MBA. Um, and uh, the other thing was that I learned that you know your career choice has a lot to do with your lifestyle. And the lifestyle of a personal chef is generally pretty awful. The margins are really low. You spend a lot of time prepping – the you know th- there's some enjoyment from it, but being a, a chef is definitely a, a really challenging. Process. Yeah, the only the only other one that's worse than that is actually owning your restaurant. Yeah, I'd imagine that's true. And and I wanted to own basically what would have been like a mobile restaurant. It, I wanted like a test kitchen. I even envisioned where it was. It would be in Rittenhouse, big glass front, similar to the studio we're in. You could look in, but you couldn't come in. There's no door. There was just one table in the back, like a chef's table, like Tallulah's table. Always thinking. Um, but that idea fell through, and I went and got my MBA and. You know, kind of the rest is history from there. <laughs> so you have a lot of big ideas. How did you wind up with the company that you have now, and what exactly do you do here? Yeah, so I went to Drexel to get my MBA in 2007, and from 2007 to 2008, as anybody who follows social media knows, those were kind of big years. Uh, Facebook became more open around that time, started uh, kind of being more open to the general public. Twitter became a thing that people started talking about. They were released at South by or either Twitter. that year or the year before. Um, LinkedIn is something that in business school people start saying, oh, you got to have a LinkedIn profile. So I'm in my MBA class and I'm surrounded by finance majors and accounting majors and people who actually understand economics like at macro and micro levels. And there's me, the creative kid, that's just kind of like, does anybody need my help with anything? <laughs> and for the, for the first two quarters of the, the program, I, I honestly felt like I was just the – just a fish out of water. Like I had no reason being there, no purpose. I was terrible at everything. Everyone needed to help and support me. And then came the third quarter and, and one of our classes had a presentation. And like, I saw these finance and accounting people go literally like catatonic at the idea. Struggling. Yeah. Just like, just white standing there. Yeah, "Ah." Yeah, exactly. And they looked at me and they're like, you're outgoing. Can you do a presentation? I was like, uh, yeah. (laughs) Isn't that like, Part of the job. Isn't that easy? And they were like, isn't accounting easy? I was like, fair play. <laughs> and uh, and that's where that's where I kind of learned that everybody has a role in business. And that was probably the biggest lesson I took away from my MBA. Thanks, $60,000. But the biggest lesson was really that everybody has a role and you don't have to be good at everything. You just have to be really effing good at what you do. So to answer your question, though, 
I see at this time that there's all of these people that are concerned with the fundamentals of business, and I see this technology that's coming out that I immediately sense is going to revolutionize things because it was a fundamental disruption in the way that people communicated with brands, the way that brands communicated with people, the way that people communicated with each other, and it created and opened up all these opportunities that were never there before. And I, saw, I thought to myself, listen, Jeff, uh, you don't like waiting in line. You don't like paying your dues, and you don't like having a boss. So why not carve out your own path by taking advantage of a trend that you see and bet, bet all your chips on this? Because I'm kind of an all-in kind of guy. And I said, if I learn more than anybody else about this, I can win. I can win at this if I'm just if I run faster, if I learn more, if I try more things, if I'm smarter about understanding this. I know that all of these finance people that think that they've got it all figured out are going to come to me in a couple of years and say, "How the hell can we use Twitter to generate more business?" So that was functionally the plan. I left school and went to a management consulting firm for two years. Went to a PR firm for eleven months. Got fired and uh, started my company. Nice. Yeah. So fired. you saw you saw. You saw the uh, the advent of social. Did you look at it as like a gold rush? Like you thought, I, I got to be there first to be the expert. I mean, it was definitely there was there was real gold rush type feeling in the air because it, you know I saw the people on Twitter and on Facebook who were immediately trying to sell. There they were like, you know, I'll I'll help your business get more followers and this and that. And I was like, there's something more here. Like what what I saw out of it was not the quantifiable stuff immediately. I saw more the. Um, kind of the theoretical things that were happening that like this was going to change how we behaved in some way or another it was going to change how we shopped eventually it was going to change how we you know got recommendations and made it was going to change how brands were even perceived because they no longer could control the message so i saw all that and i thought there's going to be a gold rush here but i'm going to be more thoughtful about it number one and number two i'm going to be the one that starts from the very beginning thinking about business which as again, being an MBA, I was a little bit of a fish out of water, but what I understood was it was about how you can use this to generate business value, either revenue or cost savings or whatever. So that's how I began to analyze it. And yeah, I saw that there was a gold rush, but I knew that with any gold rush, there's going to be those that are trying to, they're opportunists and they're not committed to it. They're just trying to make a fast buck. And then there's those of us who are going to stick it out and work through it. And again, I was all in on it. So I figured I'm either going down with this ship and or or I'm going to be a, a success at some point with it. In the same way that there were people who thought the internet was going to be a fad. Right. So I just bet my chips on it. And so, so how did you differentiate your different? Your, that's a big word. I think I you, know what you're How did you to make say. yourself different from the bottom feeders? The I can get you 1,000 Twitter followers type of people. Like how did you separate yourself? How did you sell yourself in a different way? Because you're saying that you were there in the beginning, and I know. A lot of bigger brands caught on and said, "Yeah, this is where we got to be." But how? But mid-tier brands, like, did they go? Yeah, we're not so sure. And how did you? How did you sell them on it? In the beginning, there was very little selling people of it. It was more that there were a lot of businesses that wanted to capitalize on it. They didn't understand it at all, and they were just willing to shell just out money for it. And my goal at that point was just to have integrity in the way that I talked to him about it and never make promises I couldn't back up, which I think was an amazing differentiator between a lot of the people that were out there because I could see that people were making promises they couldn't keep. So I would only make promises that I could keep, and I kept trying to – even when having the conversations with people, I would always bring it back to what they're trying to accomplish in their business. So I really approached it from a business strategy standpoint, and I just saw social as my toolbox. I still to this day look at social as just a bunch of tools that I have access to and understand better than most people, but I'm still more interested in how people are building their business. And that means that, you know, sometimes I'll deal with a client and 
we'll look at what people are saying online and the issue is that their product or service sucks and they're like well what do we say online i'm like it doesn't matter Nothing fix your you product or service right. you're broken <laughs> you could say so but and, and it, it takes balls to say that sure. to, to a client or somebody to say like look the problem isn't it doesn't matter how well you use Twitter. It doesn't matter if you're using Hootsuite or Sprout Social or Argyle at the time. It doesn't matter. If your business sucks, your business sucks. So I looked at it as how can I help these people improve their businesses and looked at more like a marathon than a sprint, which I think, again, was one of the bigger differentiators. Instead of just trying to hop in and make a quick buck, I'm looking to build an agency that I can retire on, not you know a thing that I can do before I pick up my next thing. Nice. Nice. I mean the, the philosophy of our our company and his are exactly the same. Sort of, we always are for the marathon side of it, and it hurts sometimes. But it is what it is. Like we're here to help the business grow. You yeah, know? it's a challenge. I, I, something I've been struggling a lot with lately is, um, you know, commitment. Not that's going to sound weird. Commitment issues, but like commitment issues from clients. You know, social media is still young, even though we're so familiar with it and it's so ubiquitous, and we all you know play with it on a daily basis. But um, I still find that businesses aren't fully invested in it. They they still see it as kind of like a test or a trial. We'll see what happens over two or three months. And we're trying to build out a different way of communicating your business. And oftentimes we've had a lot of trouble with businesses who don't see that long vision. And I don't know if it's us and how we're communicating it or if it's just the uh the nature of business and especially when you're dealing in marketing that that's one of the first things to get cut that's that's been a real issue for us because we want to build out you know a a business strategy for things and most people look at it more as like a campaign right right um so john and i actually run uh the register it's an e-commerce podcast so that's the sort of side we want to go now is you know tell us a more about how you would help an e-commerce client sort of get you know more followers more sort of the business side of it how would that help them kind of grow their business yeah i think the probably the most important thing that an e-commerce client needs to be thinking about is social proof above anything else social proof is probably the most important thing so that's things like reviews on your website are just a, an immediate crucial kind of thing because if you look at what's actually happened, this isn't just social, but it's mobile, and it's all of the convergence of technologies that have been happening, is that because we have access to information in quantities we've never before understood, we're looking at more sources of information before making purchase decisions. And that whether that's a car or a toothbrush, we look up stuff, we price compare, we do all of the, we read reviews. So as a result, there's all of this research that clients are now doing. You know, Google did their whole zero moment of truth thing that you know, they explored how many different sources of information people look at. And I think one of the big ones is social proof. They're looking at, do other people approve of this? What do other people review this as? Uh, what are some of the things that people say are negative about this or positive about this? So I think the reviews are huge. One, because they help to facilitate a sale happening. Two, because it helps the business to understand where they need to improve their product or service or what things are good or not good, et cetera. Um, and then at the same time, when you can identify those people who are your you know, one or two star reviewers or your detractors or your haters as they're called, if you can engage them and understand what it is, you can, one, if you can turn them around, they often become your biggest advocates. Uh, but two, they, they give you a lot of information to avoid having more of them in the future because you can fix it. So I think social proof is the first thing that I would advise. Can uh, I ask you, point. how would you engage a one star troll? Um, I, I think one, you always, you, 
you have to always take the high road as a business um, unless it's part of your strategy to have a particularly snarky tone. Like you look at Wendy's on Twitter and they're just ripping people and it's hilarious. And they're a burger chain. It's part of their brand and it's a differentiator for them. But that's, in general – That's a delicate dance yeah, though. Yeah, it's it super really delicate. backfire in your face. Anytime you play in controversy, you have the, the, the possibility of falling into just – Awfulness, and and depending upon your business, it'll more or less hurt you. Like you know, you look at like United, and all the controversy they've been a part of. People are still going to take their flight if it's the cheapest across the country. But if there's an easy replacement nearby, and you have enough controversy around you, they're going to go to the other one because you know there's not that controversy. You haven't offended people's sensibilities. So, but in terms of how you engage a one-star troll, I think the most important things are to understand why you're doing it. You're doing it because they're your customer, and you either want to understand and appreciate them so you can improve yourself. Or because you want to make it right. So in any case, I think uh, Chris Brogan in 2006, 2007, 2008, somewhere around there, uh, I remember him talking about using the three A's, acknowledge, apologize, and act. And I've always found that that's a really good strategy because the first thing is you need to let people know that that what they're going through is real, whatever heard, it is. And we heard you. Yeah, we heard you. So acknowledge. Then apologize. And not like I apologize that you feel this way. Like an actual genuine we're sorry if you are as a business and you probably should be if you want to stay in business. And then act. Make some sort of an effort to resolve it. And I think the beauty of social media among all things is that that action is public. It's seen. It's visible. So people can then see that you stand by your product, your service, and that you're a person or a company of your word. So when you when you open the conversation – it can't be a blame game. It has to be immediately like we're, you know, we're really sorry that you went through this. We know that we've had some issues. Uh, we're going to do whatever we can to make you happy. And you're going to get some people who just suck and they're not going to be turned around. But if you take the high road, it's still going to show to your advocates and the people who do like you that you take the high road and you do the right thing. So, you know, I, I think you kind of have to go into it openly and without an ego about it. Uh, again, unless it's your brand to try and rip into people and, and claim no right. fault. But that's, again, very tricky. So after social proof, then what else would you recommend for an e-commerce company? I think nowadays you you have to understand how much competition there is out there for attention. Um, I wrote a post back in 2010 that was inspired by Brian Salas uh, about attention economics. And again, I wasn't the best business student, but I did love economics and this idea of scarcity that things are sometimes subject to scarce. Time is a scarce resource, for instance, and attention is a somewhat scarce resource. We can only watch, even if we watch 24 hours a day of television, there's still only however many sources can come in at that time that you can pay attention to. So because of that, we have these feeds that are filled with information. You have to figure out a way to stand out in front of those people and then also to be there consistently enough that they're going to remember that you exist. Um, so I think understanding how organic social media has changed is important because you have to realize how difficult it is to actually get attention organically. So you have to supplement that now with paid advertising, and you have to be smart about that. It's not just about blasting in front of people and being a terrible advertiser. If you're going to be a great advertiser, you have to understand how to be in the mind of who you're trying to reach, the audience, the customer, and speak to the pain points that they're going through. And create and craft your content in a way that actually provides value to them, either entertaining, informing, um, causing some sort of an emotion, whatever it is. But if you don't have the awareness at the top of the funnel, you've got no chance of really selling someone unless your product is really that good and that groundbreaking. You really have to, you have to go through and do all of the, you know, uh, blocking and tackling and just hitting singles on a daily basis or else 
you know, you're, you're going to have a really hard time selling. All right, so let's say you have a – so there's one side of the spectrum where you have a Wendy's where it's obvious what they sell. They sell hamburgers. They sell, you know, French fries, whatever. Then you have another client on the other side, and they may be the driest thing you can imagine. No imagination. It's, you know, imagine they just sell these gray cubes. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you extract an interesting story out of that? Like how would you, Jeff, like get someone to make a, an interesting story out of a bland product? I mean, I think, uh, you know, taking a gray cube and assuming that the gray cube is a good product and has value in this scenario, I think the key is to show people how it's different and why it's valuable to them and, and understand who exactly needs the gray cube. If you understand who needs the gray cube and you talk to those people and you understand what they're going through and why they would need the gray cube, even if you have a small audience there that needs that gray cube, if you can speak to why they need it, you can position it in a way that they would pay any amount of money if it solved a problem that was, you know, desperate enough to them. Um, so, you know, we, we use a couple different techniques. And, and quite frankly, a lot of our clients are in somewhat boring industries. Um, we work in a lot of highly regulated industries, finance, healthcare, law, uh, pharma, insurance, real estate. These are boring industries if you, you know, if you really break it down versus like retail or burgers, you know, those can be a little bit more exciting. But um, we, we tend to do two things. We either focus on differentiating the product and talking about it in terms of how it's of value to the audience, or we focus on the people of the company because people are always interesting. It doesn't matter if you're the company that makes the great cube. Telling the story of how the person who came up with the great cube came up with it, what their background is. We're interested in people. We're interested in good stories. So if we can tell the story of the great cube, maybe the great cube takes a trip around the world and solves people's problems. Maybe the great cube is the product of, you know, uh, a first generation um, uh, American whose uh, whose parents were immigrants. An origin story. We, yeah, yeah. Right. So, I mean, the, I think the key is in the storytelling around it, and then and embedded in that storytelling needs to be some sort of a message, a brand message that communicates to people why they need this, why it's valuable to them. And I think a lot of strong selling comes down to you have to understand the identity of the person that you're selling to. You need to know why. The product that they're buying says something about them. Like, for instance, what color are my sneakers? Red. They're always red. Why are they red? And we could probably psychoanalyze me and figure out what it is. I would probably say because they're different, they stand out, and I like standing out. So I wear red sneakers, and people know I wear red sneakers. But that's part of my identity. So selling me red sneakers would be pretty easy. Selling me something else that's kind of flashy and would make me stand out, probably also easy. So if you know that your customer is a certain type of person and that your product makes them feel a certain way and, and you can be part of their story to themselves, then you've got a really good proposition on your hands. Even if it's a great cube, there's somebody who needs that great cube. If we've learned anything from the internet, it's that there is a market for everything. You just look at eBay. Yeah. I often give the example of Snapchat. You know, I think Snapchat is one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard. When I first heard about it, it's gotten better and more fun. But like when I first heard about it, I'm like, this is the dumbest idea ever. But it's wildly popular and I now see the value in it. But um, especially like in the beginning where it was like, I have no idea how to work this. And then I like, could not figure it out. No yeah. idea how to work it. There's no, no friends. There's no filters. I, I don't find I, I can't find anyone. Like, yep. what is this? Yep. All I could talk to was my niece. Um, <laughs> and I was just the old uncle, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that's ultimately what it is. There's, there's an audience for everything. You just have to figure out how to tell the story that resonates with them. That was a fantastic answer. Thank um, you. so what other advice would you give e-commerce businesses, uh, how to operate in social? 
Um, I think, one, they have to be committed long-term to it. Uh, and they have to be flexible and willing to try things. So, and by try things, at the very least, I mean A/B testing. You know, I think businesses in general have long suffered from from knowing, if if that makes sense. They know, right? They know who their audience is. They know who their product is for. They know. Um, you know, what messaging is going to work. And, and because of that, they get stuck in a little bit of a rut. And I think that in order to keep moving forward, you have to almost have an attitude of never being satisfied and always trying things. And at the same time, realizing that what worked yesterday may go stale today based upon a change in the network or the algorithm or where people are spending their time or what your competitors are doing or the idea that used to be really fresh and cool, but now everybody's doing it. I mean, if I talk to another nonprofit that wants their own ice bucket challenge, I'm going to like, you know, stop talking about that. <laughs> and I mean, like, okay. They, they're like, we want to do something. Here you go. Yeah, they're like, we want to do something like the Ice Bucket Challenge. I'm like, okay, forget about the Ice Bucket Challenge for a second. Tell me another campaign that was like the Ice Bucket Challenge. Like, that had that level of adoption and awesome sauce. No, you can't. It, or like the Oreos dunk in the dark thing. Name another real-time marketing thing that was that innovative, groundbreaking, awesome. No, now it's just and it, was, it was some kid that just, like, thought of it that second. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, I would give the advice of being flexible, uh, testing things, not knowing, constantly talking to your consumer. And that's one of the big benefits of social is you can constantly be talking to people and learn – Learn what they like, what they don't like. Identify who your advocates are. Segment your audience and find the people that love you, the people that like you, and the people that hate you. And learn from each of them. And I think that's probably what I find most exciting about social is is I, I think people get so focused on the media aspect of it. Like what kind of video should we do? If we do a podcast, what should our intro sound like? And I think it's more about the social aspect of it, and it's more about understanding the people that are behind it. And the better you do that, it's going to take you longer, but I think it's going to be a greater payoff in the end. And um, and I, it's just kind of what I've seen. And do, period. And I think what you would say, Jeff, is tell a good story. Tell a good story. Absolutely. Right. Um, so moving on, so since we're talking about the film side of it, um, video is becoming hotter. Mm-hmm. So what kind of things that e-commerce companies could do with video e-commerce so I mean you guys do a lot of video for your yeah. clients um, as true voice media mm-hmm. we'll plug them there thanks for the plug you're welcome um, but that's the thing like you know video is becoming the vlogging side of it is becoming hotter you know what's the sort of what's next or what would you recommend so I could come up with like a hundred different things but I'll, I'll try to focus it in on a couple so going back to people look at more sources of information prior to making a purchase than ever before I'd say give them details about the product even if they're just mundane boring details um, fill them in on the, the size and dimensions of your product show them the product from multiple angles just give them more information you might only have 5% of your audience that looks at that, but that 5% of the audience might have needed that to make their purchase decision. Because they're more engaged. Yeah, because they're more engaged. Or maybe they're just more analytical people that need more information before making Or maybe they didn't see that information elsewhere. So I think the first thing is you have to think in terms of like what are all the questions somebody could ask and answer those. And I think video is a great format to do it. I think also when you're creating videos, it's important to add a human element to it or else it's difficult to connect to it. So you see so many of these CGI videos or whiteboard videos. Right. And, I, and I think there's a place for those. But I think really where the magic happens is when you put a human being into the screen, 
uh, and they're talking to you about a thing, especially if it's someone that you can relate to. I mean, this is one of the reasons why influencer marketing is so hot right now is that if you find someone that you trust and they tell you about something, you're more likely to believe them because they've already built that trust with you. So this is an opportunity where you can either build and create your own quote unquote influencer within your organization, somebody who's passionate. You could pull from your fan base and find someone who can become that advocate, or you can just engage somebody from the outside who has a prominent voice in whatever that industry or product sector is and let them be your voice. But ultimately I do think you need somebody who's got some passion for the subject, appears well on video. And I think that's going to make the videos easier to connect with than something that's kind of dry and bland. Um, and I'll give a, a shout out to a company that I often reference. And I think does a really good job of this. But uh, Revzilla is a Philly-based company. They sell motorcycle gear and everything. And for virtually every single product that they have in their entire catalog, they have a YouTube video where they go through it. And sometimes, it, unless you're a motorcycle head, like it, it's mind-boggling what they're even talking about. You know, the composites and the, the zippers that you can use for this and, and the buttons and this kind of yeah. a clasp. And I, I have no idea what that is. But a, a real like motorcycle head would be like really interested. If you're to into that. it, you are Exactly. So, and and I think they do a great job because one, they have an on-screen personality in the form of the the CEO or former CEO. I'm not sure if he's he's still in that role, but Anthony, uh, I forget his last name. I think he he stepped down. Did he? Okay. So, so he was in so many of the videos, and you, he was just consistent. Hey, what's up? It's Anthony of Revzilla TV, and he like he had like a thing, and I think that that ultimately was one of the things that helped to catapult them as a company. um, Was that. That usage of video, it also helped them from a search perspective, which I think was a really good idea. They decided to use YouTube instead of their own embedded video on the website. And I think that probably gave them an advantage when people would search for things. I mean, let's not forget, YouTube is a a pretty heavily used search engine. I think it's still number two. So even when people are researching on YouTube, they're going to come across that and potentially come back to your site. So I think um, talking about your product, having a spokesperson in front of it, um, and I think if you can, getting out into the world and having video that's populated not on your site can also be huge. So if you can create guest placements elsewhere, if you can appear on other people's videos, um, if you can have other people that are making, you know, the sneaker industry is a great example. You know, Adidas, Nike, they barely ever would have to make anything because sneakerheads are making so many videos about every pair of sneaker yeah, that come out. That you barely even need any, I mean, that's going to make sense for the, uh, the companies themselves that are selling those sneakers. Right. But even just regular sneaker heads that don't have a product to sell, those are people that are talking about a product and they're doing it because they're enthusiastic. Yeah, we have a client that, um, that uh, I guess, Complex, the magazine, does videos all the time at yep. their store. Yep. Um, I think the latest one, uh, Chris Rock was in there. So it's like, you see that all the time, and that's one of those like, "Hey, here's the." Wait, here's you store with Complex? You said no. The Complex does okay, videos cool. at State yeah, of Goods. Yeah, because I was gonna say I love their videos. Yeah, but they do it at State of Goods, which is our client. Oh, and right it's on. Just, yeah, it just kind of forwards that. But the way they story tell that is great, right? Like they think about the life and like what your sneakers and all that kind of stuff. So that's always great. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. It's always a fun one. Um, yeah. Two more questions. Yes. One. What's your top three e-commerce sites, except for the big one? <sighs> That you like, like they're nice looking, whatever. For some reason, you actually like them. Um, I mean, it's tough because I'm I'm like a total brand whore, meaning that like I pretty much only I pick my winners and then I kind of stick with them. So I'm always on Amazon. I'm always on Zappos. I go to the Puma website. Um, you know, I'm on Apple's website. I'm on all of my favorite companies' websites, and I you know I pretty much don't dabble outside of that. Um, 
every once in a while I will discover something new. Yeah. Um, like I was on uh, Movement Watches, MVMT. One of the reasons I like them is I'm just I'm so impressed by their social media marketing, That's specifically good. their retargeting. I mean they they're gonna get me. I know it. Like I'm, I'm <laughs> I have like five or six in my Amazon wish list, and I'm like I'm gonna buy these watches uh, because they're just they're just spot on with how they do it. Yeah. Um, I, I'll I'll say that I I've recently been I don't know if I guess I would call this an e-commerce site, but um, Moo.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I just they make me feel good about paying too much money for their products. For their business cards. Yeah. It's yeah. just amazing. It's just such a good experience of going through it. Um, i trying to think of some other ones I really, really like. Um, I, I, I'm going to give a shout out to a competitor of a former client of mine. I, I used to work with uh, a company called Nuvana. They sell um, mattresses online, yep. you know, competitor to Casper and Tuft & Needle and all those. And I, I would give a shout out to Tuft & Needle because I think – they have done such a good job of creating every bit of information you could ever want to know about a mattress. On like they have this one page where if you type in a competitor, it'll say "Don't buy that mattress," and you go to this page, and it's literally like ten to fifteen scrolls to get through the whole thing. And on it, I mean, it's just it's information overload. And at that point, like if you're in any way on the fence, like you don't even have to go anywhere else. You could just go there and learn everything possible about that one mattress. And you'd probably be satisfied with the amount of right. information you've got. So they're, they're just doing info for other mattresses, basically. Yeah, I mean, and, and even within that, they, you know, they're framing their product against others in a positive light. You know, and, and I think you can, you can frame your own product without degrading a competitor. You can right. just talk about why your own one is great, and I think that's a great approach. Um, but generally, I mean, I buy in terms of e-commerce, I probably buy 95% of everything that I purchase in life on Amazon. Yeah. A lot of people um, do. I'll give you, actually, I'll give you another one that I can think of. Um, <laughs> and because every once in a while, like I'll find another site that I'm like, you know what? This is a much better place to buy, but, um, B and H camera. Yeah. B and H photo video.com. Uh, There's a plug for you. If you want to sponsor the show, let me know. But, um, they they just have so much information on their site as well. I, I yeah, they're probably one of the, the best like camera. Like they will give you everything. Everything about you everything. need to know. B and H is my thing. camera search engine. After I look at Amazon, I look at the price in Amazon, then I go to B and H and look at the specs. Yeah, B and H they have the best. They literally so, play yeah. with everything, which is amazing. Yeah, it's completely over the top yeah. and awesome. So my last question, yeah. which actually comes from our newsletter, and I think we should include this from in our podcast, is what are you obsessed with now? That's a great question. You know, Deb Gabor from my uh, episode 5 and 5.5, that's one of the questions she asks any of her new hires. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's a great question. And and I don't know if you listened to the episode, but she said one of her uh, employees, without even blinking, was like, fried chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that is is so money. Um, I just love that question. Like, for some reason, there's just been, I don't know, I've been asking that lately, and it's just, it's such a weird... At a networking event or um, like in on- online networking, stuff like that, you're like asked that question and people are like, whoa, whoa. I don't – it's a great question. I just yeah. don't want to answer it. You know what I mean? Like, I think probably my – if I had to say what I'm obsessed with right now, it's some combination of focus and priority management. I think, I think those are two of my greatest challenges and also greatest areas of opportunity the better that I can focus myself in on whatever it is that I'm trying to do and the better that I can um, 
manage my priorities to get more done and focus on things that are important, the more likely my company is to grow, which will give me more time to podcast, which will give me more time to work on passive income projects and hire more people and all that. So I'm, I'm really constantly obsessed with efficiency and and using my time properly and being organized and neat and focused. So I'd say that that's, that's probably like a lifelong obsession, but I'd say it's, it's something I've been thinking a lot about recently because I have so many things that are going on right now. I, I feel a little bit scattered at times, and I want to I deal with that scattered feeling by honing on, on that which is important and getting it done because that's just a really great feeling when you get that stuff done. Welcome to NFL, sir. Seriously. <laughs> Good answer. Well, we don't want to take any more of your precious time and attention away so yeah thank you for letting us guest host uh shareable thanks man thanks for, uh, um, subscribe hosting. to shareable subscribe Definitely. to the register this will be on both channels and we'll put it both in the show notes yes we will this will be really fun yeah this was a damn good episode i really enjoyed this and i awesome. like this whole like getting together in person thing this this whole format just feels awesome there's something about it like yeah. it just bounce off each other really well let's do it again soon yeah absolutely definitely. take care everyone thanks for listening i think this episode was shareable yeah. That was so much fun. I can't even believe the guests that we get. I mean, can you believe the guests that we get? I can, actually. I schedule them. Awesome. Well done. Well, this episode for me was an absolute blast, and I hope everyone listening really enjoyed it. But now that we're in this fun little outro, what should people do next? Hmm. I think they should check us out on iTunes. Definitely go check us out on iTunes. And when you get there, subscribe, drop us a review, and then what's that one last thing we want them to do? share the episode oh that's right that's right it's in the name so please share this episode tell everyone you know and we'll see you on the next episode of shareable bye